0: Hello and welcome to a brand new episode of Lowdown today. I'm absolutely delighted to be joined by the owner of CBF in Dubai, Chris Brown. Chris, welcome to the show.
1: Thank you very much for having me on, Connor. It's a pleasure to be on
0: with you, Chris. I mean, as we begin with every guest, can you please take us through your earliest football memory?
1: My earliest football memory would be um, as a as a six year old, I think, playing in a on a school pitch that I used to go to. And not actually for for the school, but for uh, a local team that I ended up starting out playing football called Cold Harbour Wanderers. And I remember getting um, smashed in the stomach with a football, which is probably what leaves the memory. Um, And a a friend of mine scoring a a good goal. So that's probably the, the first memory I've got.
0: And obviously you're joining me now today from Dubai, but I mean, Prior to that, there must have been a list of set, a list of circumstances that would have brought you here. I mean, could you t- take us through? I mean, growing up in England, playing the game—was it just merely playing, or did you get into the coaching before you moved to Dubai?
1: Yeah, no, I, I um started to play as, as as you know as young as probably that six-year-old, always playing, you know, above myself in terms of the age groups and with older friends and you know down the park and, and what have you, like like most kids, but. Um, from playing locally, um, I was then asked to go to Luton Town's uh, Centre of Excellence at that time. Um, ended up playing there. We had some decent players in that age group, but Emerson Boyce, who went on to play for obviously Wigan and um, in the Premier League, and uh, Gary Docherty, who played for Tottenham and Norwich, uh, and then and then at that point, I I actually started. I was asked to go to Chelsea, so I started to train it um, with Chelsea as well, but. Uh, I was still signed on Centre of Excellence Forms with Luton. So um, at the end of the season, uh the idea was that I would go to Chelsea and sign Centre of Excellence Forms with them. Um this was at this point I've been at Luton probably two or three years. Um and I think I was a teen roughly at this point. And uh during the school holidays, uh Adidas did a, a coaching clinic at my school. Um and as luck could, you know, turn out that Dario Gradi, obviously very famous in 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 you know uh, coaching and and bringing players through, was uh, the manager of a Crew at that time, and he, he came and delivered a a session, um, or a couple of sessions, I think it was, over a couple of days with some other coaches, and just got speaking to him. Obviously, I was enthusiastic, wanted to play in every session, and um, he kept you know saying, "Well, that's not you again," and uh, you know, having a bit of a laugh and a joke, and. Then he asked me, said, you know, where what am I doing with football? And I told him, said it was at Luton but it was going to sign for Chelsea. He um he said, Well, why don't you spend a week with us um before you make that decision? Uh so I went up to crew. It was I always remember it was FA Cup final weekend. Um and just just I just had a fantastic time up there. Um obviously they were renowned for producing players and it just it, it was a, it's a strange club in that way, you know, with crew. And I know that different things have come out since that time, but it's strange in a way that it, it, you know, having played at two other clubs who Luton were doing well at that time. Obviously, you know, Chelsea was um, was a, well eventually a Premier League club, but um, the, the, just the warmth of the the players and the families and, and everyone involved it's had such a family um, feel to the to the place, and obviously some very good footballers as well. And the difference in terms of the, the type of training that I was used to, um, I don't think the training at Chelsea I got was very was actually very good to be honest with you, um, and, and similarly at Luton. So it was it was all like a breath of fresh air, um, going to Crew and and everything was technically based. Uh, so I then I then went up there. I ended up signing, um, schoolboy forms at fourteen and. Um, you know, he was travelling back and forth at a weekend and playing games, which um, which I, I love doing. And yeah, my dad would, would drive me up there, or, or potentially I would get a train and stay up there. Um, and then I'd, I had uh, arm, I had I snapped my arm to have a, um, a metal plate and stuff like that. And so I was I was in I was out for quite a while with that, um, as well as a, I think it was a stress fracture in my back, which most players were getting at that time, um, and. So I was still I was a little bit wary whether I'll get a contract, but thankfully I got the I got a YTS contract. Scholars as they're known now, um, and you know played in a in a good system. Steve Holland, obviously England's assistant manager, was was our youth team manager. Steve was excellent, uh, uh, top top class coach. So I was lucky to get the you know the education in football that I got with Dario, um, and then Steve. And then the, the first year of, of moving up there um, you know, was, was a good year. Loved, loved everything about it. Um, unfortunately, in the second year, I picked up an injury in, in pre-season, um, which was an overuse injury, a tendonitis injury in my knee because um, of the hard grounds and stuff. And I never really shook it off during that season. We, we went on to have a good FA Youth Cup run. Um, we beat Birmingham, beat Sunderland, beat Man City, beat Tottenham. Um, but unfortunately, uh, I couldn't shake it. off I had an operation. Well, I was out for three months. Had an operation. Uh, and I they then signed me on the pro, but a non contract pro because I've been injured for such a long time. Um, and they were hoping obviously I'll be able to 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 get through that, but uh, unfortunately I didn't. And I took the um the the PFA you know had an insurance payout so ended up having
0: to take that. So it was the end of the uh, football career. And I mean, like, it's a nice enough point to coincide with the end of the football career to set circumstances which took you to Dubai. I mean, was it still in the back of your head at that point, Chris, that, you know, I've grown up, this is all I know with football, that I want to make a career out of this?
1: Yeah, uh, you know, as a as a young player, you, it's you, it's it's all about your your identity as a footballer, isn't it? And it's what you're known as, you know, whether you're you're going in the local pub or you're going, you know, in the, your community that you know people know you as this footballer and you know asking you questions about playing against you know Man United and famous players that have come through at that time. And um, so when that goes, and you you don't really appreciate that until it's gone. Um, you think you're going to be fine and at that point there wasn't a huge amount of support from the pfa i know they do a lot lot better now um so really from going from that to them having to to work in different jobs you had no idea about from working on building sites to putting air conditioning in, to electrical work to working in a warehouse to um gardening and working in offices. I, I really did not have a clue what else I could be. Um, so really that I remember actually being on a building site thinking I've got to do something about it because I just do not enjoy what I'm doing. Um, and I don't really know anything else. So I, I called I'd called the PFA and they said that you know they would contribute to um going on the coach education courses. Um, so I went to Lilyshore uh, and got my level two um I think it was, well, we'd done it originally at Crew as, as a prelim, but I hadn't finished it off. So I went to do my level two. And I think that was the start of that um, opportunity. I went, went as a young, well, I was a 20-year-old. I went out to Australia as well. Um, half of which was to potentially pay, to play, sorry, in the Western Australian division because you could play part-time and earn you know decent, decent money, semi-professional. My injury was where, I mean, it was an overuse injury. So I could train a couple of times a week and play um, and wanted to enjoy myself out there. Um, ended up getting injured again, tearing my hamstring, and and that was the end of that. Played against Perth, Glory, and that was probably the, the highlight of it. Um, and then ended up wanting to travel again as well. Um, again, just trying to kind of get away from what I'd, you know, not be, having not been a footballer was then where else could I go and what could I experience. So I went out to uh, spend, uh five months in on a Greek island and then about a similar time working in a um in a french resort in uh snowboarding each day um working in a bar so it was uh all oh, let's say character building or in the um the lost years i don't know either one of them
0: sounds like a great old career wreck
1: yeah no no i enjoyed it don't get me wrong um probably a bit too much at times but the um and then i i you know with my now wife, we we um a friend of ours has done a year in in Dubai, a year in Abu Dhabi, and I, I didn't really know much about Dubai at all. Um, I you know I've seen the UAE at the nineteen ninety World Cup, didn't really know much about the country other than you, you you heard about the oil and the wealth. Uh, and then I um and then it's it's seen some articles on on Brits enjoying themselves in Dubai, so it sounded quite attractive. Um, and she ended up getting a job. In a, as a hairdresser from a hair recruitment said that she wouldn't go unless, you know, a long-term boyfriend could get something. They said, what does he do? So I was coaching part-time and that was obviously the thing that I wanted to to um, to um develop uh, and ended up getting a, a job in a private football academy, which was probably one of two at that time that was out here. So we, you know, we used to coach in Sharjah, Abu Dhabi, Dubai three um, or four times a week and then we'd have a the Junior Football League, which was more or less, grassroots run teams at that time it hadn't expanded and exploded uh, like it did a couple of years later with with a number of big name um clubs bringing their private academy soccer schools in
0: and to those who don't know any better i mean obviously dubai always well in the last 40 50 years most especially very economically prosperous but for football aside i mean or focusing on football I mean, you're delving deep there into the, unknown question. you're speaking about only two academies in the region being set up. At the time. Like it's night and day compared to the Dubai that we see nowadays compared with the football scene, which obviously you've played a prominent role. in.
1: Yeah, it, it is. When you look back on it, it's quite incredible because there are, as you say, Connie, kind of you've experienced it and you know how it seems like in every other day that there's a new football academy that opens up out here. Um, and because of the place is such a transient place and there are so many different nationalities, obviously, um, people, whether it's an ex-player, whether it's a club, whether it's, you know, just someone who wants to, uh, you know, has a passion and, and thinks that they can start up their own business. So it's a very competitive marketplace in that, in that pay for play model, which it's become um, out here. Uh, and, I've, you know, I've probably seen, there's been, a, obviously, you'd expect it over time, the improvements um, and there are now the coaching is a lot better. Um, the, the, the structure is better, uh, from a private, uh, probably from a competition level, probably from a, you know that ability to to get kids playing. Um, but I think there's still a lot of work that needs to be done, um, from, from the ultimately from the, the governing bodies and federation.
0: And where did the idea for CBF come into fruition? So I
1: worked, so 2006, there was a warm weather training facility that um, opened up called Jebel Ali. It was the first really of its kind in the region. I think Newcastle and a couple of other teams had come over on trips and kind of used pitches and stayed at hotels. But uh, JA, saw, uh, JA Resorts and Hotels saw a, an opportunity with Viv Anderson, Tony Woodcock as the consultants on it to build two football pitches and uh, you know basically change rooms in an office. Um, And then they would capitalise on teams coming through, you know, staying at the hotel and and the rooms and F&B that 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 created. So um, I was asked to then, I've got, you know, half decent name in the community from a coaching aspect to set the Umbro Academy up at the facility. Um, Mick, um, who's the, the Academy Director at the time, Mick Leonard. He started to coach education courses with the English FA a guy called Paul Smallley, who's the technical director out in Bangladesh now. Um, and we obviously had a lot of teams that started to come through, whether it be Premiership teams or whether it be Eastern European teams. Um, after a couple of years, I, I ended up uh, managing the facility. Um, so we, you know, we were kind of servicing the community, but also servicing a, an elite level of football um, and. You know, it all worked out well from that aspect. Um, I then set up my own company called It's Just Football, which is now known as IJF Academy in 2013, um, where I started to use other facilities. I kept JA as a good, strong partner, but started to use Nadashiba Sports Complex, His Highness's facility, uh, Dubai College, which is arguably the, the, the best academic and sports school out here, um, and a number of other different facilities. Um, And then I was approached by an Indian sports group, uh, some conversations I had in 2016. Um, They were looking to build on what they'd done in India using expertise that was based in the UAE across different sports. Um, And they were in the process of acquiring a a swim and gymnastics company. Um, And so they spoke to me about the acquisition, um, which opened up a a whole kind of new world to me. Um, They ended up, Buying the company 100%, I became a global director of football, which sounds very grand, um, but it, it it did um it did it did enable me to to travel a, a bit more, which is what I wish you know what I wanted to do. They had a bad big visions with some some very kind of corporate high flyers, um, and and so they they set upon that. We started a cricket company as well. Uh, a friend of mine joined from the, the ICC, so um. But after about a year or so, they had some cash issues over in in India. Um, bought out by private equity. It was it was um you know they had exit plans. Um, and they were probably accelerated by the, the kind of the cash issues that they they felt over there. Um, so they sold out to private equity, and that vision that they they sold me on really a kind of it evaporated and I felt it was time to move on. So that was when CBF was born in um, August, 2020.
0: And it's been amazing because to the outsider, I mean, the trajectory has just been upward, Chris. Indeed. We first met when I was helping out with the training camp with Senate St. Petersburg, ourselves and Cullen. And since then, I mean, it's been amazing. You've seen me in a cup in its infancy, You've seen the Chelsea-Aston Villa game, which you guys commercialised last year. Indeed, the coaching courses, which I've been fortunate enough to be a part of. But, I mean, to the outsider, again, on an upward trajectory, has there been any setbacks internally that you've had to kind of unpack and un- and go through? Because, I mean, to to people that don't know, Dubai, I mean, football aside, quite a f- vicious business scene there as well.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think there's, there's challenges every day, isn't there, in, in running a small company. Um, whether that be cash flow, whether that be staff. Um, I think what you know we've always tried to pride ourselves on and, and the staff that we've we've brought in, and obviously you make mistakes along the way and you, you try to learn from them, but um, we've tried to be different. Um, we've tried to kind of, you know, everyone wants to, to, to say that they develop things, but we've probably said that we, you know, you look at what's going on in the marketplace here now, we were doing that a number of years back. Um, so we've always tried to push it on, um, with whatever that may be, whether that be working with Mason Mount and Ross Barkley, or you know, or, or now turning to you know the, the first game between two Premier League teams in the UAE with Chelsea Aston Villa. So we're all, always looking at ways that we can be honestly different or better um, with that, and that 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 always is, has its challenges, is not it? Because you don't. You, you don't get everything right ultimately um and, and you do have to go and learn by those mistakes um and I suppose from from an outside perspective it can always look like it's going really well but it's what's what's happening um you know staff is, is always is always a problem because we live in a place which is quite transient um and sometimes the um the attitude maybe is that you people might not be here for a long a long term but I think you now you you I've been here for 19 years, but I never came here thinking that I was going to be here for 19 years. I came here thinking I'd be here for two years. Um and it's just become a a home really, a second home. Um it's a great, it's a great city and it's a great, you know, we've been able to expand from Dubai into Abu Dhabi now as well, um, with what we do. So the, the country as a whole is is very well led, very, very well governed um and looks after not only its, its own people, but also, the, the, you know, the people that come to live here.
0: And, I mean, Chris, as CBF has began to develop a lot more kind of branches, let's say, I mean, you've had to delegate a lot more. How have you been with that?
1: Um, You know, a few years back, particularly as a coach, I never felt that I'd be able to, to do that, to delegate that when you try and obviously build a company and um you've got to manage a a number of different facilities or or different coaching sessions that you never you know you never quite feel that what someone else is doing is as good as what you would do and you it takes a bit of time I think to to let to understand that no that's it's not the right way to obviously go about things and you're never gonna build a business scale a business in that um you know with that mindset so you just got to entrust in the people that you hire and, as like I said before, you're going to get some wrong, that's for sure, um, that they, they're going to do the job, you know, as, as well as they can and let them make their mistakes and and hopefully they're not too detrimental to what happens and, and they can push things on more. And as long as you can obviously guide people with the, the vision you have for something, then, you know, you try to get that buy-in from people.
0: Yeah, and what people as well need to realise as well, Chris, it's kind of... Especially this time of year, it's very relentless for yourself, very taxing schedule because the Dubai football calendar, really, you have to kind of throw away June, July, and August. So it's really only nine months a year we're all operation or we all have been operational over in Dubai. I mean, a landmark, a landmark event in the Dubai schedule now is the Mina Cup. Thanks to yourself and obviously, of course, this year of the Mini Mina. Can you bring us up to speed on the MENA Cup? Yeah, no,
1: the Mina Cup really came. Um, kind of from from a, as, a, as a young kid, and um, probably our staff are bored of hearing this from me. But as as a well as a as a sixteen year old, you know you play in, you playing good tournaments. But then I played in in the Milk Cup over in Northern Ireland, and um, which is now known as the um, Super Cup not NI, um, and it just left me with with fantastic memories, and, and it was just a all round great experience um, from a football aspect. And from off the pitch as well, um, you know, you felt like you was a professional footballer at that that young age um, with the crowds and people asking for signatures and um, what have you. And obviously playing against very good teams. We lost to Spurs in in the semi-finals of the main competition in 1996. And they pushed you Dortmund in a third place playoff. Um, If you come away from that with, with great memories. And then in 2000 and... Seven or two thousand eight we started to take teams away. Probably two thousand seven, actually. I remember uh, the Ma- uh, Umbro Cup in Manchester. We we took a team back, and then from there it was Goffia Cup, and then it was Adana Cup, and Helsinki Cup, and Madrid, Germany, England. Obviously, a number of times playing against professional opposition. Um, and there was never there's never been a tournament considering that we've got um in some fantastic infrastructure, hotels, facilities. You know, people want to come here anyway um, for holidays. You never have to sell Dubai to anyone or the UAE. Um, that I felt that there was a, um, you know, a, a, a tournament that was deserving of this place, really, that, that spanned across different age groups. Now, Miguel Sogado's set up a fantastic tournament um, with some top, top teams, uh, which is in you know, a six-year here. But it's one age group and it doesn't, it doesn't allow... Um, the the other private football academies to play in that tournament for me it had to be you know kind of two pronged in the fact that yeah we'll, we'll get some great teams over here and we'll we'll go across age groups but we'll we'll also ensure that it's part of the development of of football um, in the country um, so there's a there's a UAE qualifier so teams we had 72 teams in that last October teams need to qualify to play in the main competition. Um, we've run the tournament, you know, it'll be the second year during Ramadan now. Um, so it's, it's tough because obviously one, you're asking players that, that you know, that maybe Muslim players to um, to play in those conditions. But also, you know, when you're trying to attract teams from around this region, they just won't, you know, they wouldn't look to play unless they're from the UAE and mainly expatriate. So um, from next year, you know, we'll look to... We've got 32 teams uh, this uh, this April. We've got, you know, the likes of Crystal Palace and Middlesbrough at 12s, New York Red Bulls, Yokohama at 14s, team from Tanzania, India. Uh, Robbie Fowler's Academy's got a couple of teams in, teams from California. So we're, we're pretty varied in terms of where teams are coming from. But I'm sure that once we uh, come out of Ramadan next year, uh, that we'll get teams from this region. And... Um, as well as the, the the local professional clubs, because at the minute they can't take part because of because of Ramadan. So <clears throat> we're trying to provide an experience that is like because what our core business is is around team training camps for the top teams, the Chelsea's, the Aston Villas, whoever. Um, so we're providing an experience to these young players that they would got going to the Milk Cup, but with better facilities. In, in all in all fairness, uh, staying at a beautiful five star resort. So they're getting that professional football experience at a young age, um, and and those you know the small details is is what we're looking to install into the into the tournament, um, and embrace technology, the innovation side. We we'll just signed a you know deal with uh, an NFT company, so where we can capture moments and those those moments can be stored for the players. So we're looking at all different ways of. Around the tournament to also make it commercially viable as well, because um, you know, there's, there's tournaments all around the world which rely solely on um a benefactor, let's say, um put, putting money in that will pay for these teams, pay for their flights and pay for everything whilst they're here. Now we're never going to pay for anyone's flights, um, because it's just not sustainable. Um, but we can still get some top teams. Um and I think that you know, given two or three years, they'll, those teams will be wanting to play in the competition because of the experience we can offer. And they'll,
0: they'll pay their own flights. It was absolutely phenomenal to be there and witness the inaugural I a mean, Cup last year, Chris. I mean, it was truly an unbelievable cultural experience. And the fact you, you had a Pumas from Mexico, you had a Reliance and Minerva from India, you had several African teams involved. And it's something which we even discussed off-air. I mean, the development of football, grassroots football, so to speak, in the UAE giving the players access to playing against the best. I mean, going forward, I mean, what do you think needs to be done with youth football in the region?
1: I think that there's the, the 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 biggest thing for me is that the, the lack of grassroots football. Um so that the the levels of football it's very, very mixed together. Um so I think that um the the governing bodies of the federations Really need to support grassroots football, and and that will enable the growth of the game in terms of get more players playing. Because ultimately, if you play, if you have a a model which is a fee paying model um, that we know, and I know over in the states, obviously, you know, time has gone on that it has been very big. Um, but you're going to miss a lot of kids. You're going to meet a lot. You know, people think of the UAE as you know, very wealthy people and stuff, but there's a lot of kids out there that parents can't afford to send them to football because of the prices of the academies. What they charge? Don't get me wrong; they get a lot, a lot better coaching than they would do if it was a parent-run volunteer. Run. But kids are not taking part, and potentially talent is not being identified because of this. So, if you don't, if you don't build that base layer um and and then you have a private football and then you have the professional clubs. And then I can't see how the game ever develops. And I, and I think that's evident to be honest with you in with the national team over here. Um, now things are changing. They're changing with the introduction of the, the second and third tiers um in in well sorry it would be the third and fourth tiers sorry of, of UAE football second and third division which enables expats to play. Um, so there's a there's a potential route through, um, so that's that's a step in the right direction. Um, I think that there should be a ruling. I mean, I did commentary on the on the UAE Pro League here, and we they got us together recently, all the commentators to because the attendances are not very good at the games. What can they do to improve attendances, and how can they bring expats in? And the first thing I said was simple: you you need to bring in a quota. We've you've got you know currently. Six overseas players can play in a, any can start in a match. A couple of them can be residence players, which is how they class a under twenty one player with a, an Emirates ID. You know, an not not a, a passport as such, but obviously, as you know, have been a resident. Now, what coaches will tend to do, well, what they all do is is buy a, a player from Brazil or Africa who's who's twenty, um, because obviously they they. Um, they know they've got a better chance in keeping their job rather than relying on maybe a a, a 16 year old British kid who's come through the system. Um, So what for me is, is obvious is that if you change that quota and you have to have one expatriate player that's come through the system, it buys into the communities. So you've got huge communities, Indian communities, Egyptian, Lebanese. One of these talented kids was to come through the system um, and play, then people will go to watch that that kid. Now, if they've got a big name, now people might go and watch him once. They're not going to generally go week in, week out. They don't identify with that player. They'll ide- they identify with a kid that's come through from their community, and that will start to build that out. Um, so I'd love to see that happen. Um, and I think ultimately that would benefit the national team because they are starting to naturalise some players. They've done it in different sports before here. Um, and I think that can only be good for um, for football in general, to, to build, build the base layer, sort out the structure of football and ultimately give them a pathway so those players can play in a first team and not have to go to Europe or wherever else in the world to be able to get, to get trials or to try and make it in a, in a very, very tough competitive environment where they're playing catch up ultimately.
0: It's always an interesting one. It's a separate podcast in of itself, Chris, when we speak about what do fans actually engage with. um, Most anecdotal evidence I have here is the 2019 Boston Consulting Group study with MLS clubs over the MLS fan. And it wasn't necessarily speaking what appealed to them, bringing like a Pirlo, a Gerard, a Robbie Keane, so on and so forth to the league back in the day. What fans actually were engaging with the modern football fan nowadays was something with a bit of flair, someone on the up, someone that was going to be playing European football in a few years. Hence, you had the U22 DP initiative spring out of it in the MLS. I mean, you don't have to look too far down the road. You look at Al Jazeera, the success they've had in the last few years, two, three years with the likes of madden Davis and James Gow, unfortunately, who both are no longer with the club, but the work they did in proliferating pathway between academy football and first team. We're speaking about yeah. obviously, we're speaking about the future of football here in Dubai, Chris, with obviously a big emphasis on youth development. What role do you see CBF playing within that?
1: I think from a coach education aspect, we can play a big role in that. Um, we've had the relationship with English Football Association for, well, since going back to my days with Jebel Elliott two, in 2006. So I think, you know, when you talk about grassroots football, then you've got to talk about coach education um, because you've got to get, you've got to build that out. You've got to be able to qualify uh, for enough coaches Um and, and get them experience um, coaching players, getting on the grass and, and working with players. Um, one of the, the issues that there currently is 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 again goes to the paper play model, because if you if you if you look, we were getting a lot of candidates come through our level one course, want to come on, want to be a coach for a number of different reasons. It might be a career change. It might be they want to coach their son for different reasons. But a lot of them are actually well, the passion for the game. Um. And, and potentially, you know, being a coach as a, as, a, as a job. But what tends to happen is because these people are are, are maybe don't have a, a, a huge football background, um, and they don't. They come on the level one. They they're so excited and enjoy the course so much, but then they don't have an opportunity to go elsewhere because the private football academies won't employ them. Um, or won't give them experience because ultimately they're charging parents quite a lot of money to come to there, and their, their standards there, which you understand. Um, so how do these how do these coaches go and get experience? So then the, those coaches have got to there, can't get experience, and then fall off again. Um, so the you know the rate then going on to a level two and potentially to a level three minimises. So I think certainly from a coach education aspect, I think from the MENA Cup itself. Um, so we, we manage the Rangers Academy through in Abu Dhabi as well, which um, which is with you know coaches from the club, but that also helps with with, um, with bringing a big brand and and you know the the opportunities that lie from potentially taking players back to the club. But certainly the main ones for me are, are coach education um, and, and the Mina Cup with with uh, a, 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 probably giving players a, a platform to play on.
0: And if we pick up the phone again in 10 years' time, hopefully Chris will have a few conversations in between, but if we were to pick up the phone again in 10 years' time, do you envisage us having a different conversation regarding the nature of the game in the UAE?
1: Yeah, I think we will, because I think they have to. Um, I think that other industries, you know, they're, they're world leaders in, or, you know, it, it made huge strides in a lot of other industries. So I think sport is one of those that they haven't really done. Um, I think that they're... World class at producing one-off events or, or, or events over a weekend. I don't think, um, from a long-term player development perspective, whether that be, you know, I can only talk about football. I'm not going to start talking about other sports. So I don't know about other sports, but um, they don't seem to be doing much on the international stage in 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 any sport, really. So I think you know the the, the visionaries, the, the leaders of this country, have done st- incredible things, probably start to look at it and hopefully look at it and go well this needs to improve you know we we're, we're we're fantastic at all these other things why are we not fantastic at sport um so i hope, hope i hope this changes there um and i think that the fact that saudi arabia you know next door neighbor is is doing what they're doing um within sport then it's it, you know you know the nature of uh, of the, you know this landscape in terms of how competitive they can be um, you know, brother to brother, um from country to country here. So that will help spur them on, I think. Um and I think that they if they see the likes of Saudi making um real long-term development plans, which they have done, um, will hopefully uh kick start and and, and develop football and sport here.
0: Because if we speak about the UAE overall, I mean, Chris, we do speak about them as innovators. And I think a huge part of it is creating a compelling picture of change for the future. Uh, Jack Dorsey, former Twitter CEO, had a great quote about innovation. He says, innovation, you know, in developing countries, it's a necessity. In developed countries, it's a desire. So I think there's an identity issue piece there, especially within UAE sports. So it's going to be absolutely fascinating to see how it plays out over the coming few years. Yeah.
1: And, and, you know, I don't want to sound too critical because ultimately football is about culture as well, isn't it? So, um, you know, we're used to football being ingrained into society where, where we're from. And that football started 150 years ago. So you look at the country itself, um, you know, 40, 50, obviously 50 years now, then let's, let's be fair. You know, there's, they've got, most other people have got 100 years on on this. So if you probably if you compare like for like, then they probably are way ahead of where they, they should be. But I think also given the um the resources they have available, then then they could be even further ahead. And I think that they could could improve things. And these things take time, you know it's not a it's a it's a 10, 20 you know, year plan with, with these things to get to change a culture um takes a long a long amount of time, obviously I'm sure in different studies that have been done. Um, so everything that we um relate to within football and you know the smells and the noise and everything in regards to, to that side of the working class football um is different to here. Um, there, there isn't that kind of uh spectator-led um I suppose um culture
0: that that, that that we we know. Chris, it's been an absolute pleasure to have you on, to finally have you on. Um, I'm very much looking forward to seeing how CBF continues to grow in the future and indeed the MENA Cup, the second edition, what's different this year compared to next. But as we begin to wrap up and bring it to a close, I mean, obviously you've had quite the journey yourself. I didn't hear that piece. I never heard that piece about the Greek island, Australia and France. <laughs> sounds, a bit, sounds a bit more than a cultural exchange to me. However, I mean, for whoever who's slightly bit inspired, you know, listening to you talking about your journey today, I mean, and they would wish to thread a similar path and get into the Falkland industry. What advice would you have for them?
1: Um, Thank you, Connor, firstly as well for um inviting me on because you've had some massive names. So I'm honoured to, uh to, you know, to, to come in and speak to you for that. So um, well done on a fantastic podcast. But the, um, funny enough, I had a, I had a sit down with a, a young lad who, who was. I coached him probably eight years ago and he came in come into the office yesterday and he said exactly the same thing. And he said, look, I'm not really sure what I want to do. I love football and I I, I want to be involved in some way, shape, or form. I've probably got a, a, a more identifier from a data aspect. I more enjoy that. Um, and what I said to him really was that, you know, you, you do get a lot of people ask you, Um, and want advice and want to sit down and have a coffee. And obviously you've got a business to run and, you know, we've got the, as well as CBF, we've got number 10, as a new content and creative agency as well. That So there's a lot of things going on, but I'd never, I, I would, I would, if someone makes the effort, to be a little bit different um, and, and to be, find an angle with someone. That's how I've always feel. I said to Kai yesterday is that if you can look at, you know, he's, he's from, his mother's from Holland, his dad's from England start to research stuff about people that you might want to get in contact with. Um if if you show that you're fro- you know that find out that person's from somewhere in Holland you can identify with that. Um and you your message to them is is a bit more interesting than can I have half an hour with you? Um you know that's that's one way to go about it. Um in terms of actually going out and trying to build a business then um you know that kind of really happened to me out of I've always been a bit I suppose entrepreneurial but things happen in your life and we that you know you find yourself in a situation that you didn't think was going to happen so whether that be the you know an injury from football or, or whatever it may be and you just see an opportunity and then you kind of run with it and um just probably try to be a little bit I suppose um fearless with it and um a bit of Bit of gambling in there, which um, you, you've got to try and um, just work. You know, simple. I'm sure what, what everyone says is you've got to work hard because someone else will be trying to work harder than you. But be a bit different and be be a bit um, be a bit smart with your angles um, and where you where, where you're looking to get to from them is if that makes any sense.
0: Chris, what a fantastic way to close the show. Um, have to say. I was really looking forward to getting you on for a while and that didn't disappoint.
1: Top man. Appreciate it, Connor. Thank you very much.